Hey there, ho there, hi there, and welcome back to Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. The podcast where we break down the movie American Splendor, scene by scene, talk about Harvey Picar, and discuss the joys and challenges of being professional cartoonists. I'm Josh Newfeld of joshnewfeld.com. And I'm Dean Haspiel of deanhaspiel.com. And today we are discussing scene 18 of American Splendor which starts at minute 44, second 32, and ends at minute 49, second 07. It's the second half of the momentous first date of Harvey and Joyce. Yeah, we were going to originally do this as one podcast, but there's so much that goes on and it's so much fun that we decided to break into two. So if you've seen or heard our breakdown of scene 17 from episode 17, we are actually picking up from where we left off on Harvey and Joyce's first meeting slash dinner date. The film in this portion of the scene transitions into Harvey's apartment as they enter a dark cavern of disarray. The door opens and we hear a sad meow. I was wondering if it was a cry for help from Inky, Harvey's cat. Most likely. And... This is true for both Save Josh me. and I, but we never noticed that Joyce actually pets the cat because it's, it's so, so much dark. in the dark yeah. we, that it acknowledges that there's a cat there yeah. and she pets something. I almost feel like they put the sound in after they shot the scene and realized how dark it was. And, and then to and, say, well, what is she touching? What is she doing? Right. Yeah. So she pets the cat and then she views his apartment, which looks like a tornado hit it. <laughs> Harvey says he didn't clean up on purpose. Because that would be lying. He doesn't want to lie to Joyce. Yeah, he doesn't you know? want to like convey a false impression. A false impression. Yeah. And he claims he could wash a dish 10 times and it would still be dirty. Yeah. That's how serious his problem with cleanliness is. And I feel like he's making a reference to her many problems, which she outlined at the restaurant. Oh, so he's, he's adding like, to oh, his Oh, you're list. a sick woman. Like with some... You know, he seemed impressed by that. So he's like, well, now I have a problem, too. That's you know, right. I have a and, cleanliness problem. And she respects people with problems. Right. She understands problems. Well, this is one of my problems, right? <laughs> I can't pay rent. I can't, you know, clean it. No, I'm kidding. He can pay his rent. That might have been one of my lists. <laughs> he even mentions, he makes a, a note that he even got kicked out of the army because he couldn't make a bed, which uh, if we're going to do a little bit of a comic book reference, I think it's possible. And I haven't done the research like you have, Josh. But it is possible that he talked about this in a previous comic in American Splendor. But specifically, there's a scene in the graphic novel I did with him called The Quitter, which is basically his origin story. Yeah. But the difference is it wasn't the Army. It was the Navy. Right. And, yeah, I think he had issues of making the bed. But also, specifically, he talks about he couldn't wash the socks right, mm -hmm. which I still, to this day, even though I drew it, yeah. I don't understand what he's talking about. How do you fail at washing socks? I think it was something to do with having to do like a bunch of laundry at once. And, you know, there was a the official military method of washing socks and linens. And he got so obsessed with what he was supposed to do and how he was unable to do it that he he got into this endless like too cycle. Too much bleach, no bleach, like, or something. I, I don't again, know. Again, I have to it review was, the comic again, it, which I should have done some of my homework here, but I guess... That's part of well, the Well, you only drew it. It's not like, That's true. you know, you have intimate knowledge I just of it. drew what he yeah. wrote, you know, like I'm just an artist. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, in, in that scene, he gets so obsessed with his failure that it sort of drives him into this cycle of despair and he ends up being sent to the like military psychologist and that's what sends him eventually out of the military altogether. Right. So, I mean, I guess in a way, is it saying that he was disorganized? 
I mean, he's clearly disorganized in his home. Yeah. But he knew how to organize a comic. Oh, you know what's interesting? You know how he always drew one line down the middle of the page mm-hmm. and then one, two, three across to create that eight panel structure? Yeah. And he did it for every page, even if he only had to do it for one panel, right. a carryover. Right. Maybe it was part of him trying to have structure. Create some, you know. System. A system, which yeah. he could, didn't have necessarily, he was able to employ in his real life. Mm-hmm. That's something that maybe Joyce could speak to, you know. Yeah. Now that when we Harvey's passed away, right. Anyway, so the rest of the scene, they sit down on the couch and suddenly Joyce needs water and aspirin. And Harvey's like, are you okay? And he's like. Uh, do you have a headache? She's like, no, I'm trying to avoid one. <laughs> She's like preparing for the potential onslaught of a headache. Yeah. So then the question is like, does she always get headaches at this time of day? Is it him that's causing we, or, or I, so many questions. I would get the headache just by seeing his house, <laughs> right. you know? So in a way, it's I think like, she's oh, also one's coming on. That's right. There's yeah. one coming. And maybe the people watching the movie are having a headache, you know, or a seizure <laughs> or some kind of PTSD or something. Right. So it's, it's a little signal to everybody. It's a little wink. You know, it's medication time. So suddenly melancholic woozy jazz starts to play as Harvey admits, he's happy to have her there. You know, there's like this nice little moment from this like kind of not not a, a tete-a-tete necessarily between the two and how sick are you versus how sick I am and how authentic, so on and so forth. But they actually kind of break bread at this moment, you know, with the mm. signal of this woozy, melancholic jazz. Mm. And he says that line, despite your problems, you seem like a great person. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and actually, it's funny. There's so many great lines in this movie that I do wonder how much of it is derived from the comic specifically or was written for the movie with either by the screenwriters, the filmmakers, and or with Harvey's help because it just is an onslaught of great lines throughout the film. But that's what is confusing about these scenes in particular is that they're not ones that are derived from any comics from actual American Splendor But maybe they poached lines from other stories that you haven't been able to identify. I'd love to find that out. Right? Yeah. So what happens next? You know, he's, he's happy to have her there. He's been lonely. They begin to settle into each other while being authentic. And frankly, I have to say, a little semi-annoying. They continue. You know, she keeps throwing a couple of barbs. And, and I wrote here as a note, as much as this is a memoir, it almost plays like science fiction. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. I wonder how many viewers could identify with these two misfits falling in love. Because there's comedy, there's right. absurdity, but because it's based on a true story, it's really starting to veer toward abstraction in a way. Because of the dynamic between them, it, on paper, you'd still be like, no, these people, there's no way they can get together, you know? Hmm. But because it's humanized yeah. and it's nuanced, you start to realize oh, that there is a chemistry because of it. Exactly. You know? And also, everybody can in some way identify with those awkward first dates and that first moment of, you know, are you going to put your arm around But every time there's a mistake made, sort of he doubles down. They both double down on their mistakes. Right, right. They're not like trying to course correct it or do something you know, nice, as right. it were. You mean they're, they're nice inherently, mm-hmm. but they're not, you know, pulling the wool over anybody's eyes no. kind of thing. They're not performing for each other. That's right. Then suddenly the music kind of heightens, the jazz heightens, and they kiss for the first time. Sexy. Uh, and it's nice. It's a nice little kiss. It is a nice kiss, little kiss, you know? yeah. They smile. Harvey leans in as Joyce gets sick. Yeah, her moaning turns to groaning. That's right. <laughs> and uh, you've heard that a lot in your life, right, Josh? <laughs> well, we'll get to that. Oh, okay. Sorry. 
So Joyce gets sick and asks where the bathroom is. And then the next shot is she's vomiting in the bathroom, which is very funny because it goes from a kiss to vomiting to, you know, inhaling to exhaling. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, that's just a staple of comedy. Kissing exactly. to vomiting. Perfect comedy. there. Yeah. He's a little worried, obviously, but she blames the yuppie food that they ate. And Harvey, this is beautiful little gesture. He offers her chamomile tea, mm-hmm. and she wonders what what does a guy like you have chamomile tea in this place? Like, there's no way. And he says, you know, I've been listening to you. Whenever they talk on the phone, she's always making some kind of tea, and chamomile is one of the flavors. So he knows that that she drinks that a lot. This impresses her, and uh, she starts to feel a little better. And you can see in her face she starts to acclimate to his home. You know, she feels something here. She feels comfort. She mm. feels safe. Even you know? in that. And that's all in performance. It's not even in the dialogue. Right. You know, it's in Pope Davis's who, mm-hmm. who's portraying Joyce Brabner. And I didn't mention it in this podcast yet, but Paul Giamatti is portraying Harvey Picard. Oh, Paul Picard. Giamatti is right. playing Harvey Picard. Right. Yeah, I've heard of him. He's um, good. So, so wait, this is the moment when she's in the bathroom after she's used vomited. the WD-40 air freshener. She was uh, spraying some air freshener and realizes <laughs> it's WD-40. So, you know, she makes mistakes too. And it's just, it's cute little moments, you know. It is. As he brings her, I think it's choices of tea. He actually had like a couple of boxes of tea. She says, I think we should just skip the whole courtship thing and just get married. And he, his, his look on his face of like yeah. shock and awe yes. in a way. Yes. You know, as best as Harvey can be shocked and in awe. Right. We cut to a post-coital bedroom scene. Ooh. As Harvey looks at her and is, he's super glad that he talked to Joyce into coming to Cleveland. I mean, he's wondering if she's serious about moving there. Mm-hmm. And she has this other great line, which is, I find most American cities to be depressing in the same way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she's totally cool with that. <laughs> And then the scene transitions to what's going to be... Uh, well, he asks her about the vasectomy again. Oh, that's just right. To make, like, sure, to make sure you're to, cool with the vasectomy. Yeah, that's circle right. that. That's right. And in terms of comic book reference, Josh, you have the comic book in front of you. American Splendor number 10. Yeah, uh, so... The cover. It's very much an aside, but since he says at one point, you know, I could wash a, a dish 10 times and it would still be dirty... There was the cover of American Splendor number 10, which is the same issue that has the marriage album story that's been sort of the guide for these two scenes by Val Merrick, American Splendor number 10 cover, 1985. It has Harvey attempting to wash dishes, and he says, poor dishwashing has always been my Achilles heel. If I could upgrade my dishwashing skills, I could really disarm my enemies. <laughs> and meanwhile, and, Joyce is drawn in the doorway, kind of giving him the hairy eyeball. Yeah, there's like the dotted line going from her eyes. So to he's him. implying in the cover that his enemies could be his wife. Yeah. like, And also there's this weird like reference to superhero comics, which is right. just totally almost out of left field for these kind of comics. Although I've always maintained, you look at the American Splendor logo and it's loosely based on action comics. Yeah. And we found out recently that that logo was designed by... Gary Dumb. Gary Dumb. Yes. That's right. Who Gary hopefully Dumb. will be a guest at some point soon. Yes. Yeah, but so that's a shout out to that cover. So did you have any other feelings or thoughts about the scene? Yes, so many. I mean, I keep coming back to the overall thing, which is just how much this is not like 
playing out the way romantic comedy movies that I've ever seen before ever played out. You know, mm -hmm. it's not cutesy. Mm -hmm. It's not super romantic. It's mm -hmm. not like each of them is at their very best and you can kind of see why each of them would fall for the other. It's undercutting all of those expectations. They don't look like one beautiful Hollywood exactly. blonde bombshells. And, you know, right. that's where I'm teetering toward it, that some could interpret the this science almost fiction. as science yeah. fiction. Yeah, like we're watching two What, is, what planet slugs. are we on? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, But at the same time, time it is like you were saying last episode i think it's really underlying how they are soulmates you know that yes. they are both so authentically themselves they're not pleasers in any way either one of them and that's why i really liked what you mentioned about when harvey goes to get her the tea it's sort of like wow we're seeing this actual caring mm -hmm. caretaking side of harvey picar that we have to this point not seen at all ever right. like he actually had the foresight to go and buy tea for this woman who's coming to visit him in cleveland he had no idea how things were going to go mm -hmm. but he bought tea for her and mm -hmm. he honestly seems concerned about her and wants to help her out of her distress but that opening shot of like when they come in so the way it was originally shot, you know, like two shots of them coming in and then sitting down and mm -hmm. their scenes thereafter were kind of normal. But mm -hmm. the POV shot of Joyce's when she sees the actual apartment, I almost wonder if that was like a pickup shot or something that was shot later and to just really punch the comedy because you don't that see is it again. crazy. You don't see it again. And right. it is crazy. It's how, apocalyptic. Yeah, almost. it really is. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's spilled liquid it, it, on the floor. There's it, empty Chinese food containers. There's cat food. There's it's just almost like debris. he went out of his way to make right. it worse it was, than the way he maybe even lives. Exactly. In true life. But again, pickup shot or not, it works. Yeah. And it also just speaks to the comedy of the scene, right? Yeah. I mean, it recommends the comedy. It, it you know, but also like I don't think I I know anybody who's ever had a place that looked like that. I know they right, exist. exactly. Because you, you, you might, yes. I'll, I'll be in the country and I'll be driving a car past an old house with a porch and that porch is filled with like nine old refrigerators. Right, and like, right. You know, you can only imagine and, what's inside. Exactly, all that kind of stuff. And I can't imagine what's like, but it felt like it was that level mm -hmm. of hell, you know? But that's, the part where it almost takes me out of the movie because this film is so good at never pushing mm. the comedy to mm. a comedy, mm. you know, movie. It always keeps it within the realm of realism. Mm. And I almost felt like that was like their version of the trash compactor from Star Wars. Like there was a Dianoga ready to come out at any moment <laughs> to, to pull her under the water or something. Is that what that was called? Yeah. You're such a I only nerd. know that because I listened to a show called Star Wars Minute. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> Swear by it. But... So, yeah, I mean, as much as I laughed at that moment, I almost felt like it was, you know, a garbage bin too far. But whatever, it's not. No, and, and again, I, there, there's a validity to that because, like, you are wondering, like, she's going to his home for the first time. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, he impresses her with chamomile tea, but everything else is a little too, like, whoa, dude. But, right. it, but at the same time, he does talk about how, like, he was about to break. Right. He was going right. crazy. And we knew that from previous episodes. Right. And he says it in this one in How bed with her at the was. end. Like, you know, I, and then she even admits I, she was about to break, too. Of course, yes. we don't know much about her. Right. But the fact that that's where they kind of become allies in this mm -hmm. relationship. So. Yeah. And it gets to something that we've talked about before, too, which is like it's impossible for us to judge someone else's relationship. Like mm -hmm. I know what I look for in love and romance. Mm -hmm. You know what you look for, mm -hmm. but we can't apply those same standards to these other two people. I mean, right. maybe they weren't looking for 
torrid, passionate romance, but right. more just finding someone else who kind of understood who they were and, and just accepted them. And in a way, I don't know if Harvey's character knew this, but because she claims later, or at least it appears that she likes to fix people and fix things, at least diagnose them and try to give them solutions right, right. for answers. He was a perfect case study for her to save him, you know, right. basically, you know. And it does come up to apartment being a mess is an issue for both of them at later points That's in, true. The, in the movie too because it also it's a, a physical and visual fallout of their depressions mm -hmm. you know when they go in and out and the ebb and flow right. of feeling terrible you yeah. know for their various reasons was there anything else you noticed well i was just gonna say i was gonna ask you like what's the worst apartment that you've ever been in because I, I can talk about a couple of experiences i almost start starting to feel now the way i'm living is not so good because <laughs> i have so much media you know books right. records uh, cds no, we've talked about that before right. we know that that's but other but like in homes? terms of mess like food and like garbage lying around you don't, you don't live in a place like that I once went to, and I'm not going to call him out, and he, and if he listens to this, he knows I'm talking about him. But I remember when I was younger in high school, I would go to a pal's house, and when the lights turned on, you would see the floor would move. It would scatter. <laughs> I've later, been in apartments like that. Later on, I realized that's the amount of cockroaches that were living there. Yes. And I can't tell that was a building problem or if that right, was an apartment right. problem. At the time, I thought, you're disgusting. Uh -huh. There must be something up, you know, like, <laughs> and they weren't happy with it either. Right. But I remember being really skeeved out by that, yeah. you know, like, yeah, so. I feel like all of New York City in the 1970s was like that. Like Absolutely. Cockroaches had definitely prevailed Absolutely. at that point. I do remember one time where I live now, I've lived there for almost 22 years. Someone above me had a cockroach problem mm -hmm. and they went Rambo on their house and like had it bombed and sprayed and like, I don't know, inoculated. And suddenly I had a cockroach problem uh -huh, when I yeah. didn't have well, they one. Moved, they, they moved. They moved. Yeah. And then I had to Thank deal with you. that for a little while. And it wasn't as bad as this other situation. I, I right. uh, But do cats catch cockroaches or they don't want they to play with them? them. They, they love bugs. Okay. They're toys. But they're know? not like actual exterminators. They're not hunters. They're right. not going to like, you know, do my job for me, right, you know, right. kind of thing. And they also get Man, little, you can't eat them and they don't get rid of the cockroaches. What's the point? Cats? Yeah. Cats are gods. Oh. We must take care of our cats. I see. Yeah. Okay. I've heard that theory. They're gods and goddesses. I, I usually have goddesses. <laughs> okay. And they're the best things ever, even though they ignore you a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's the point. <laughs> they teach well, you, you know, humility. That's what, exactly. That's what gods do, right? Yes, they do. So, yeah, I... I have a little story about that. I have three brothers-in-law, so I'm not going to specify which one's apartment mm. this was. But one of my brothers-in-law, Sari and I stayed in his place when he was living off campus, when he was just graduated from college. And that apartment reached that same level, like mm. where it just, he did not care. It was like his off-campus place that was his own. He spent most of his time either working on his car or mm. bartending. And it just was a pit. It was unbelievable, like how dirty and disgusting it was. Mm -hmm. And we stayed there for the night, like on the floor. And the things that we saw as we went down, you know, to get on the floor, like underneath things and things attached and stuck to other things mm -hmm. will, will never leave my mind. Mm -hmm. and, and it's funny because now he's like totally like a normal guy and has a nice apartment. Mm -hmm. He grew up, but like a year after that, I went and stayed with him in DC when I was going for one of the first SPX comics conventions actually. Mm -hmm. And 
I noticed in his kitchen that there was a, a lot of dirty dishes like stacked all the way past the top of the sink and mm-hmm. the, and the food was like crusted <sighs> onto them so badly that it looked like I don't know how much washing would be required but I just backed away. Not washing fire. You yeah. need fire for that. So I, I actually brought it up later with him and I was like, dude, you know, that was some crazy dishes in there. And he's like, yeah, I ended up throwing them all away. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. <laughs> so he threw his dishes away as oh opposed my, to cleaning them. That's how them. he washed them. He <laughs> just buy new dishes. Yeah. That is so messed up. Yeah, it's wrong. I still have dishes from my childhood. I remember we had these metal, big, flat dishes that each had a different color green red blue yellow whatever and not they, the fiesta where these are like metal these were metal okay so they're actually not great in fact in, in part when they rust it's just not good oh, for yeah. you but i remember having those as a kid and then one day they were gone i guess my you know spring cleaning whatever my parents got rid of them oh and then a year or two later i'm at a yard sale or something in the catskills with my mother and I come upon the, these dishes. I'm like, Mom, Mom, look, look. These are like the dishes we had when, we were, when I was a kid. And she gives me this look. And she looks at the guy. And she had sold the dishes and a lot of stuff, you know, with other things. And to those were guy? my actual dishes. So I bought them back for like 50 cents a dish. Oh, that's and awesome. And now they're in my house that I occasionally use. Oh, that's so. great. But yeah, I mean, I, obviously I've been to lots of different places that can skeeve you out or... You know, and again, I feel terrible that my space is too packed as well, you know, and it's almost impossible to have friends over even, you know, just to even watch a movie on the couch, which is about what I can do, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, I know there are certain people who are homemakers and will devote that time and space and money to that. Yeah. I'm not one of them right now. You know, I've dated people who are homemakers. Mm -hmm. Alas, me and my girlfriend are not necessarily homemakers. Yeah. Well, you're artists. We want to, but we're artists. So we we focus and spend our energies and time in in those, you know, arenas of making and creating art. Exactly. Not necessarily a home space, although I do crave the concept of one. So. What is that old song, Every Man Needs a Maid? Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Every man needs a maid. Yeah. Okay. Neil Young. Wow. You could read that in a lot of different sure. ways. Sure. Um, did you notice that when Joyce sits down and Harvey goes to get the aspirin for her, that she picks up the metal plant that was that, the, that. the object that his previous ex-wife tried to take with him and that he snagged? And he and was like, I, I that, want that. That's the thing I That's want. Mine. That's my domestic right object and did you notice that joyce kind of looked at it and seemed to appreciate it like she's like yeah she did and i wonder if there's a metaphor there because it's a metal plant you don't really have to take care of it exactly ah yeah would you look at that yeah i think that's about what i had i did want to mention there's a little moment in the marriage album story Mm -hmm. that sort of encompasses some of the same material but it's actually narrated and it's sort of interesting it kind of caps off some of the material that we just had here right that i'd like to read uh it takes a second okay Um, sure and this is from american splendor number 10 came out in 1985 yeah so this was the same story that has been sort of the foundation of the last three episodes and it talks about the moment that they decided to take it from the courtship just to getting married, but it's a slightly different scenario. And it's written by Harvey and Joyce. Yeah. So this is the next day after they met at the airport. So basically the next day from what we've just seen in the movie. And Joyce says to him, or Harvey says, you're sure you feel that way? 
And he says, sure, I'll tell the world. So I was getting married again for the third time, another Harvey Pekar crapshoot. And then Joyce says, I didn't want to get married again until I was at least 55 or 60. But it was just like being at a flea market. You see one thing you never expected to find there, and it's so special, you've got to have it, even if it's going to take all your money and you don't know how you'll ever get it home. I knew it wouldn't be perfect. I'm social. He's quiet. I wouldn't know anybody in Cleveland. I was very involved in my own community. Here I'd be a stranger. Harvey knows squat about things like washing dishes. He likes junk food. I eat real food. But we manage to work it out. Mm. And again, like a visual metaphor, if you know the comic, I think the plant, the metal plant also works with that flea market kind of vibe. Oh, yeah. You know, uh-huh. like he's probably that's where you got it. And, you know, and, and we've already established that he goes and looks for records at flea right. market situations. And feels that paying 25 cents is overpaying. Yes, it is. <laughs> he's not wrong. That's cool. Yeah, uh, I thought it was a beautifully written little absolutely. section. I guess my question, a couple of my questions to you is, uh, when you and Sari first moved in together, what things did you change about your behavior, if at all? Man, there's a lot of things that you do when there are no women around. (laughs) (laughs) You you quit serial killing? (laughs) Yeah, that's it. That's That's, it. That's what it was. That's what I was referring to. Gosh, you know, I mean, I just remember being so, like, my... M.O. whenever I would enter a new relationship was total desperation and eagerness to please on every level mm. that it was it usually didn't turn out very well because I would pretend to be this totally other person. I would be so solicitous and so, you know, anxious to do please. whatever needed to be done to make sure that I, you know, still had someone the next morning mm-hmm. that, you know, and also it was a situation where I was living with another guy before Sari and I moved in together, and we had a cat. How did you please him? (laughs) That's a whole other story. But yeah, we had a cat, and Sari is extremely allergic to cats and couldn't live, couldn't even come over to an apartment that had had a cat in it at that point. She now has better control over allergies, but at that point, it was a real thing. So when we moved, my poor roommate, Jake, had to get rid of his cat. But we all moved together. So Jake and I moved to a new place. He gave his cat to somebody else who took good care of it. For me, he was to doing help that you for out. me. To help me out. Oh, wow. Big ups Thanks, to Jake. Thanks, Jake. And Sari moved in with us. And it was her first time moving out of her parents' house. It was her first time living like as oh, a grown-up. Oh, so the three of you like The three together. of us moved in together. Oh, yeah. Okay. So in a two-bedroom. So okay. he had one room and she right. and I shared the other room. But yeah, it was a small place. And I think we all had to make sacrifices you know i'm saying all this stuff about how hard i i how many things i gave up to please her and to woo her but i'm sure that there's also all those things that you do unconsciously and are just part of who you are like my nerdy self like mm-hmm. i have all these comics i'm taking with me or my mm-hmm. drawing board or all these other things that take up space that i don't even question whether it would impinge on someone else's freedoms so, you know, I'm sure she would have a lot to say about that. We'll, we'll have to have Sari come on as a guest sometime. And, I mean, the second half of that question, is, you kind of answered, which is, did you have to get rid of stuff? It sounds like you had to get rid of a cat. We had to get rid of a cat. But we was there anything the specific that, like, she was like, Josh, you, you can't have that? Or you said to her, I can't live with that? No, I mean... L- it was her first apartment, so she really didn't have much other okay. than her clothes. Would and you ever bring something home? Or did you bring something home? It was like... 
I know I've done that. I have a tendency to find things on the street and bring them home and her to just look in horror at them. So I think there was probably a fair amount of that. That still goes on to this day. (laughs) Mostly inanimate things. Oh, okay. But yeah, good news about the cat, though. Jake ended up leaving the city not long after that because he wasn't happy in New York and he moved out west and he took flotsam which was the name of the cat wow. with him and he ended up having that cat for like 18 years oh see so things ended up very well I'm for happy flotsam. to hear that yeah. as you know i know that you traveled with sari a lot yes so we're dealing with two people that kind of moving together in the movie right you know from where was she living she was in delaware delaware to cleveland yeah and she's okay with that because all depressing all american, american cities, cities are same, depressing right? in the same way but you and sari actually went from meeting each other at the nation to eventually moving in together, to then literally leaving America. Yeah. And I I don't know how much you want to get into that. I know you did a graphic novel called A Few Perfect Hours. Thank you. That deals with that. But what was that dynamic like? Do you feel like you found each other more in that dynamic because of traveling? I mean, that puts a lot of pressure on people, I, it I does. would assume. Yeah. Yeah. No, there was... There were some tense moments on that trip, especially in the first few months. Um, So we lived together for about a year in New York after Jake left, and we stayed in that apartment, and we both had our jobs and, you know, sort of figured out what it was like to live together, and I think we had a good thing going. Mm. She used Jake's old room as her writing room, so she had like a place to, you know, a room of her own, Mm -hmm. as Virginia Woolf famously said, and we had a good rhythm, but we had this desire and urgent need to go traveling, to escape the rat race and see the world and mm-hmm. sari had already done a little solo traveling on her own and she had like a rhythm that she had figured out in doing that mm-hmm. but like now it was a couple traveling mm-hmm. and it was definitely an issue when we first we we bought a one-way ticket and went to hong kong and those first few weeks were really hard on her because she had to negotiate this guy and I, I'm kind of like Harvey like she's social and I'm not as social mm-hmm. naturally so there'd be always these awkward things when we meet other travelers where Sari would be like hi I'm Sari and like you know I'm mm-hmm. from New York where are you guys from and she'd enter into this whole banter that happens between travelers and it was I was still in my like mm-hmm. suspicious paranoid New Yorker mode right. and like I don't want to meet these other people like they right. don't look cool you know right. Right. so we had to negotiate that. I had to definitely change a lot. And, and there were some close moments where she almost threw her hands so up. I was like, this. I'm done, you yeah, know. Yeah. But it worked out. Right. You're reminding me of a dynamic you two had that, that infuriated me. Oh, great. I, I think you guys were living in Wicker Park in Chicago. Yes. And I came over and we're hanging out. We probably ordered some Chinese food or something. And for some reason, we were watching an episode of Friends together. And the both I of never you, will admit to ever watching <laughs> that show. But I remember you guys, just like right now, there were a joke would happen. And the way Friends was written, like a lot of comedy, is like there's like a setup of like two to three jokes happening and then they continue the story. You guys would laugh so hard that I would miss the next two jokes because <laughs> of how loud you were. And I and I even commented time like, shut up. I want to hear the next joke, even though I'm laughing and I want to laugh, but I want to laugh more. And I thought I to myself, laugh more than I'm you, laughing. You guys must do like reruns constantly because you could see an episode of Friends four times and be new to you. There'd be all this new material. Because like happening. the second joke would be the one we. Well, missed you wouldn't laugh at the, the first, first one because right. you knew it, so right. you wait for the second one, then laugh really loud to miss the third one, then you go back a third time to watch it. Yeah, see, it's a way of really getting the most out of life. <laughs> that's that's right. Yeah. But on this theme of romance and yes. uh, dating and yes. first dates or. Right. You promised last time. Yes, I promised to read a 
little funny story I wrote uh, about a date. So I believe part of what set up this scene of them meeting each other was kind of like on the phone, basically saying, you know, you want to meet face to face. Right. Right. So I'd actually written a story in 2011 about a date that happened in 1997. Okay, wait, let me get the dates right. (laughs) So eight years ago, I wrote a story that happened in 97. Got it. Okay, so it's, it's an old story. And it's called Face to Face. And it was during a period of when there was a, I used to, I was on nerve.com, right. which was kind of like a dating site, but really I feel like it was, it was like more, a very sexy dating site. Uh-huh. It was more of like a hookup site. I, that, I it came to find Tinder that out. before Tinder. I didn't know that at the time, but okay. that's what eventually, that's what happened. Got it. Okay. So if I may, I'm just going to read this out Please. loud and we'll have a little story time here on the podcast. In 1997, I was 30 years old and made single when my girlfriend broke up with me over the phone while visiting her mother in the Midwest. We lived together, but it was her apartment. So I switched boroughs from Alphabet City to Carroll Gardens, and I put my dick in a drawer. I was working part-time as a file clerk at an investment bank company in Midtown Manhattan, and I was a wreck. I'd spend half of my office hours scribbling comic book stories on scrap paper to fully realize at home and... When I wasn't feeling creative, I was feeling morbid and lonely. Cyber dating was embryonic, but was steadily becoming popular and piqued obvious interests. So I took my dick back out of the drawer, sparked a profile on a dating website, and added my avatar to the deluge of digital cattle looking for love. Within weeks, I was juggling prospects and I was up to my elbows in strange. After a few months of sexual conquest and primordial decadence, I declared there was no real love to be found online and I decided to take a break. I was about to hide my profile when a mysterious girl started to court me. Her profile picture brandished a pair of rose-colored eyeshades and nothing else, but I got sucked into her seduction anyway. After a compelling week of back and forth, I gave her my phone number and waited for her to call me. It was late on a Friday night. I should have been in my local bar sniffing out candidates face-to-face rather than making bedroom eyes with the promises of text-based woo. The phone rang, and we got candid quick. Something about her made me spill beans, and within minutes, I was pouring out my heart. I broke every first-date rule and became a river of too much information as I went into a sonnet of how much I missed my ex-girlfriend. I must have delivered one long, miserable sentence that took 10 minutes to expound before I took a gasp of fresh air. And that's when I noticed the phone line was dead. The ominous hum of a dial tone. She'd hung up on me. Or so I thought. Turns out my neighborhood suffered a short blackout and cut me off. A half hour later, the phone rang. It was her. She'd been listening intently to my story of love and hate when the phone died and had been trying to call me back. Before I could apologize for my self-involved monologue, she threw the gauntlet down and said, face to face? I looked at the clock. It was almost two in the morning. I said, sure. A short while later, my doorbell buzzed and I was greeted by a squat woman wearing black leather, sporting four color animation character tattoos on her neck and wore a fake mohawk slicked together by hair gel, but not fully committed to shaving the sides of her head. She looked like someone who answered the phones at her father's law firm in Connecticut during the week and pretended to be a punk rocker sleeping on Avenue A in the East Village, pouring 40-ounce bottles of malt liquor under the street to, quote, 
the brothers who can't be with us, end quote, with all the other trust fund kids on the weekends. Not to judge too harshly, but I wondered what I'd let into my home. She walked into my bedroom, sat on the bed, and dove into an oral checklist of what she liked and didn't like, a parade of exhibitionism and fetishism that culminated in one particular tale of voyeurism that sent shockwaves up my spine. <laughs> she had recently encountered an underground sex cult that was hosted in a small theater. Ticket buyers watched as a naked man was brought onto the stage. He was stretched out on a table. Directly above the table was a thin metal frame hanging from the ceiling. Another man came out in dark red robe with a wooden box. He was the master. His box was filled with pins and needles. The master would dominate the naked man by sticking needles through his skin and stringing the needles up onto the metal frame. Once the man's body was fully attached to the metal frame by needles and strings, the master would play him like a human harp. The man's audible pain created a symphony of moans and groans as audience members masturbated to his song. I felt fatigue. It may have been a psychological defense mechanism, but I suddenly grew very tired. I became exponentially exhausted as my eyelids flickered with drowsiness. Had she slipped me a drug? Would she soon be digging needles into my comatose body and play me like a musical instrument? <laughs> no, not possible. We hadn't drunk anything, nor had we touched, and I didn't allow smoking in my home. Maybe I'd reached the apex of human fear and confusion and was shutting down into some sort of protective sleep cocoon? I don't know. I just knew that I had to surrender to my unconsciousness, and I politely asked the woman to leave. She was disappointed, yet filled with neurotic energy. Perhaps reliving the moment in the sex cult theater put her in a heightened state. But I was not to become the diddle for her fiddle. <laughs> no, I'm really glad that you did not become the diddle to her fiddle. <laughs> so yeah, so definitely you you went into a protective cocoon coma. coma. Yeah, <laughs> and this is very much like what a Harvey Pekar story would be. Yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. <laughs> Absolutely. This is the one that got away from his <laughs> The oeuvre. black kiss of, of American Splendor. <laughs> That's right. Oh, my gosh. That so, is amazing. Yeah. Thank you. So she wasn't really looking for a long-term relationship, is my guess. No. And it's funny because like, that's what I was looking for until I realized right. that this site was not necessarily yielding that. Yeah. You know? So what state of mind would you have had to have been in for that story to have piqued your interest so you'd become her fiddle to her diddle well i had to have been attracted to her and, I, and when i remember her i was not instantly so that didn't okay. help you know yeah but number two that story was so frightening to me and again i was wondering was i going to be like what was she telling me that for right i guess she in a way was doing what joyce and harvey were doing is like, like testing each honest. other and being honest yeah and if i had reacted in a more positive way maybe we'd be married mm -hmm. you know but sure it wasn't my thing and again it's funny i love those kinds of stories yeah you know i write stuff like that for fiction i mm -hmm. I, I love that my movies but in reality i was not as interested to mm -hmm. be honest you know i do remember a first date i had with a high school mate of ours that we both know gina who kind of like a weird date i had and she was such an incredible artist remember she yes. we, we had our little comics you know crew, yeah. but she could like she, she outdrew draw all circles of us. around us yeah and i remember i decided oh we're friends but let's kind of do a date situation and i maybe i bought chinese food and we 
And the movie I chose for us to watch was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, nice. Very romantic. <laughs> I remember thinking, God, this movie's great. Isn't this movie this, great? This it's like is a who documentary of horror. Yeah. Like this is Leatherface and Sure. And I just remember looking at her like like Joyce eh? needing uh, water, aspirin, and uh, chamomile tea after <laughs> vomiting, you know, basically. So I was thinking, you know, that great moment where you're just, you know, like pouring your heart out and breaking all the, the rules and right. telling her all about your previous girlfriend. And then there was this blackout, which just happened to happen. I know. It made me think of Trip City or some of your other, you know, urban environments that are, or Brooklyn, you know, mm -hmm. that are cognitive and sentient mm -hmm. and are just like, okay, we got to pull the plug on this right now. You know, like yep. the environment, the actual. Oh, the environment was trying to shut it down. <laughs> it's like, okay, we got to like, help you out. Too much information. <laughs> yeah, shut TMI. up already. You know, so. Yeah. Uh, that's great stuff. Oh my gosh. So when you when's the comic of that coming out? I don't know. Sometimes I write these things and I just like how provocative it is in your head versus right. the way I would true, draw true. it. Some things work better just as prose. And I know? did create a drawing for this. Uh, oh, speaking okay. of Trip oh, City, yes. it was up uh, before it, it shut down. I did yeah. do a version of this online. So that was oh, up. We'll put that up on the website. For yeah, sure. you put up maybe the short story and, and the drawing would be a lot of fun. So. Definitely. Well, do you have anything else or... Uh... So I feel like we've... I'm ready to talk about the next scene once we get to it. Yes. You know? I know it transitions with a, a really cool song, and we'll yes. talk about that in the next episode. All right, let's do it. So um, let's wrap up this one. And just remember, folks, that you can visit us at scenebyscenepodcast.com and Scene by Scene on Facebook. And you can subscribe, download past episodes, read up on the show, check out our work including all things RVP car and join the discussion. And there's the store, which we mentioned last time. And until next time, when we will be discussing episode number 19, this is Josh Newfeld and Dean Haspiel with scene by scene with Josh and Dean.